Well, it is so great to see you again. Alicia Wackerly Holman, thank you so much for joining us on the Ed North EdTech Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great. Uh, Alicia is the Assistant Research Professor in the Department of Educational Psychology at the University of Minnesota, and that's where we are right now. Mm-hmm. You're also Director of Translational Research at the Center for Applied Research and Educational Improvement. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> because we should all improve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're all working to get better. So we're here. Is this, is this your main kind of gig? Uh, you, you split. I know you have two offices. Yeah, I do. Which pretty, pretty impressive. <laughs> I guess maybe you could think of it that way. Um, I split my time between this office, which is my carry office, the Center for Applied Research and Educational Improvement, and then I have another office on East Bank, which is where educational psychology is that department, and that's where I work when I'm in the office for that job. So I, I split it about half and half. That's what I was going to ask. Is it uh, about 50-50? Just some, about somewhere in there. in terms of locations. Let's, let's talk about, so you're the assistant research professor in the Department of Educational Psychology at the U of M, and uh, if EdTech doesn't fit into that somewhere. Uh, I don't know what would. Uh, (laughs) Could you tell us, what do you do? Yeah, so my research is really about early childhood development, really thinking about young kids, three to five-year-olds, and their language and early literacy skills, which are those early skills that kids develop as they're on the road to learning to read. And along the way, um, I was uh, mentored by my advisor and mentor, Scott McConnell, to learn about assessment and how we assess those skills when kids are in this preschool age. And part of our work um, ended up moving the assessments that we had developed into a technology platform. And that platform really is designed for educators to assess children in a dyad format. They use uh, tablet devices. The child holds one device and the teacher holds the another device and they, they are yoked together through Bluetooth. And um, they and get real-time feedback through the app about the student's performance and how it relates to their instruction. So we've developed a whole um, dashboard for how teachers can consume the data and how then they take that data to translate it in what we a process we call database decision-making to then change what they might do tomorrow for that student based on their skills and abilities. So that is what opened the door to EdTech for me. And since then, I've had a few more projects that have um, continued down that path. And now I use EdTech pretty often. In Excellent. So how long uh, did it take to develop what you're doing right now? From what point yeah. like, did it start? That's a good question. Um, The whole continuum of the measures, the measures are called the Individual Growth and Development Indicators, or IGDs for short. They are probably 25 years old now, but they didn't reach the EdTech platform. They didn't get to their tech space until... 2012 is when I got my first grant to start working on that. No iPads back then, right? Yeah, you know, iPads were kind of like a mystical thing. Like there was this brewing like, oh, is Apple going to come out with a tablet device? You know, it just seemed so far away. We started our ed tech work actually with the um, iPod touches, like the little. Yeah, so that's where our sort of proof of concept came from at the assessments. And then soon after the iPads came out and now all of our work is in tablet space. So that it's it's been a, a generation of different technology um, products, hardware coming out as we've developed our content. And can I ask, like, what are you working on now? Yeah, so I still work in the IGD space. And one of the cooler things that we're, we're I think it's cooler, but maybe it's not <laughs> um, that we're doing is changing 
uh, how we think about assessment in a way that responds to bilingual populations or multilingual populations. So we're able to use now audio files to um, digitally represent specific dialects. So for example, one of our tools is in Spanish, and so some of the technology is allowing us to integrate Puerto Rican dialect for the students who are working with the measures in Puerto Rico, and then primarily a Mexican-influenced dialect here in the U.S. mainland. So that's kind of a cool aspect that now we're starting to tinker with. We're also doing it in the Hmong community with white and green Hmong here in St. Paul. And then um, we have another project that we are just kicking off the ground right now. We're about six months into it, which is a game-based platform. So we're working with some tech designers on um, game-based assessment and really thinking about how to engage a three- to five-year-old in something that feels like a game but really is on the sly getting some assessment information from them. So we have a couple tech partners that are really specialized in that space, and we've had a lot of fun doing that. And where do these three- to five-year-olds come from? Oh, everywhere in the community. So we spend... Um, a good part of our time and our design work, but then we are we engage in what we call community-based participatory research. So that process is really thinking about what do teachers want and incorporating them from the very beginning about like you know if I had the perfect app for you, what would it what would it look like? So they are part of the process for design. We do a lot of focus groups and interviews with them. And then we work with the students in their classrooms. So we send home consent forms to the families and essentially, you know, ask permission to engage with their students. And then we have a parallel process that happens in community. So, for example, in the Hmong community, we connected with community elders about what is important about the language and what should we be assessing. Um, so all of that is sort of the access point we have to the young children that are in the systems that we're working with. So that, uh, that's, that's really interesting. Tell us about starting out and the path that led you to where you are. Uh... Yeah. Um, the, there is progress in a couple different veins. So um, the technological extensions of the tools that we started with have grown pretty dynamically. So we learned um, about how to build our own contact management system, and so that's been a really cool asset to our, we can do sort of rapid prototyping in the field. I could make an item that I want to test with students right now and pump, push it out to the folks who are testing in the field today, and they would see it immediately. Wow. Time. No, no approval from uh, 12 people in a board Yeah, no, I get, to do, I get to tinker with items um, based on what our research tells us in real time, so that's pretty fun. Um, and the progress we've also, I think, has been the growing pains of learning about the world of tech and um, infusing research from sort of a more developmental lens with the folks who are ed tech experts. So when we started, we really had no idea what we were doing. Our tech partners were not educators, and so it was like speaking two different languages. And now we've come to, I think, really understand how to better um, create collaborations that allow uh, visibility and understand deeper understanding on sort of both sides of the process. So um, we've moved across different ed tech partners over time, and now we have some in-house capacity to, to do some of the work. So that's that's been really great in terms of growth and development. And then we've also, um, one of the products that we started with, ADs, um, here at the university, there's a mechanism for when educational technology is considered lucrative to the university, they'll spin it out. Um, and what that means is they do an internal startup company um, that's designed to sell the product. And then if that company does well enough, typically it goes to a market where a bigger company will buy it up. Um, or if it's super successful, it might stay its own company. But um, we engaged in that process. So we had a startup company called Early Learning Labs that originally sold 
um, the IGDI measures and did its job for a couple of years. And then a bigger company, Renaissance Learning, came in and bought um, that company. And now they are the commercial um, partner that sells the IGDI measures out in the field. So that's been a really big part of EdTech that we've just been like learning as we go. We didn't know anything about that when we started. And now we, ha we have a little bit of a deeper understanding of how that whole process all works. Well, that must have been lucrative for you. Well, <laughs> I think I'm in the wrong field. For uh, in, in research, there, it's less of a... There's a saying in our field that's like, you can either do good or you can make money, right? But you can't... It feels like you can't do both. Uh, so I sit in, I hope, the, the do good part of it. Um, our, our work is funded federally by grants, um, typically. And so the, there is a royalty arrangement for the measures, but... It's it's certainly not anything that's gonna put me, <laughs> make me not feel like I have to have a job or anything like that. So, um, and then tell us about your your other job, which yeah. is not a, not an other job. It's it's what you do. Yeah. So my um, my job, as we mentioned in the beginning, is blended between an assistant research faculty, which is like my research agenda, the stuff around IGDs and assessment. But then in my other role, um, a portion of my time is bought by the university to be at CARI, the Center for Applied Research and Educational Improvement, to lead a group of researchers in thinking about how do we better connect educational resources in the university with partners out in community and to build research capacity. So, for example, if a school district is interested in looking at a practice that they're doing, they, they would come to CARI and say, hey, we, we want to share this with other people in the community. We need some help like engaging in the research and how do we test it? How do we do that? And I help lead that process and connect the researchers to, the, to those folks. Or uh, we have other clients who say we have a product um, outside of the university mechanism and we don't have any evidence yet to show that it that works, but we need an external um, group to help us design a study to do that. And so they'll come to us and we'll set up a contract where we'll run the research study for them and give them the resulting report. So that's part of my role here in CARI. And then the, another part of my role is to connect the researchers here in our, our college, the College of Education and Human Development, with a sort of interested parties out in community, right? So mm -hmm. if I know, oh, there's this really amazing work happening in math down the hall for me, and there's a district that's like, we don't know what to do with math, and we wish we did, right? Making those connections is part, part of my role, so. So you're working with preschoolers mm -hmm. on one hand and uh, college kids on the other. Yeah, I'm the full spectrum on the other. So um, we have partnerships with the Minnesota Office of Higher Education, which is like college sure. and post-secondary. And then we, we have all the way down, you know, through elementary, middle, high school, down to pre-K. So just the whole continuum of development. And then even beyond that, sort of the spheres of influence on students. So things like parents and community members that are like have a role in how students are learning or um, building skills. Uh, did COVID play a role in how you did your job during uh, yeah. during the peak? Or I mean, I don't know anybody that would say no. It didn't well, I guess. <laughs> um, well, but yes, yes, it did explicitly. Let me let me rephrase that. How did COVID <laughs> affect your uh, your working abilities? Yeah. So for me, um, there's a couple of different dynamics. So being here at the University of Minnesota. Um, we are really fortunate to have a lot of flexibility in our day-to-day -day work, so that part was not terribly challenging for me to be able to work from home. But, you know, I work with preschoolers, so they, they weren't in classrooms anymore. So a lot of the federal projects that were funded by the U.S. Department of Education, like mine, either had to pause or were making modifications to be able to engage with families. And a lot of these families were super stressed out, right? A lot of these kids were at home with their families while their families were still trying to figure out how to maintain an income. So the priorities for young kids 
it became different. Um, and so our work did pause, um, put a hold on some of our studies while we just worked to support our partners in ways that were more fundamental to their needs and less about the research that we were doing. And then over the last year, um, we engaged in some hybrid context. So because our apps are Bluetooth connected, um, we use that as sort of like a launching pad to move to an internet-based connection. So I could have one device in my office, and then I could have another child using a device in their home, and they would still be linked. So um, that made it uh, an opportunity for us to engage with parents alongside of their kids with some of the content. So that was a new and exciting sort of silver lining that was different than what we had been doing before. Do you like that uh, better or the same or whatever than as, as opposed to face-to-face? Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't know that I like it better. There's a lot of conflict in our field about what's developmentally appropriate um, for young children. So I, I'm a parent of four kids, and so thinking about screens and how much young children spend time in front of screens is something that's you know an important consideration. Uh, uh, that's, I think, a lot of preschools and pr- programs are, are really trying to be thoughtful about, right? How much do we want them to engage in that? On the other hand, right, there's a lot of opportunity in engaging in rich ways that can be really tailored with screens, right? Like I can dial right into this individual student's need with a specific kind of tool in our app, right? And so that having that capacity to have that one-on-one time across the screens can be an asset. So I don't know that I like it better. I think I probably, just based on my training, tend to lean still more on the, you know, being in person will always, you know, a person will always be better than a screen. But it certainly surfaced some of the strengths, right, some of the assets that are part of that dynamic of the interactions that could happen digitally that otherwise we maybe didn't think that they could. Do you feel then, you kind of alluded to it, that uh, parents maybe were a little bit more engaged when you were doing it remote? Yeah, I think, you know, prior to the pandemic, parents were hearing about what was happening in the classrooms as a secondary, like, level of information, right? So we would go in and work with students, and then we would send home summary reports of, like, hey, your child, you know, participated in the study. And I think, like any busy parent, you you catch, like, visibility of that and the notes coming home, but maybe don't really dive into it as much. And when we were meeting with children online, right? The parent was right next to the child helping mm-hmm. navigate. And so they got a really like direct observation of what was happening. And I think that did sort of strike a different um, lens on, oh, the, you know, this is what they're looking for. And this is the kind of stuff that maybe I could be thinking about as I'm, you know, scaffolding language and literacy skills with my child. And so it just, I think, opened the door for some of that. And I think parents, post-pandemic, I think parents now have a different lens on what engagement looks like, right? So we we all went through it. We all, we all had to like sort of figure out what school online looks like. And now we have different assumptions, I think, about what the mechanisms of school look like. And so some of our parents have stayed engaged in ways that now we can connect with them on when we do focus groups or ask them to review content. And I think they're more open to that than um, maybe prior pandemic because I think they had more visibility about, you know, what is actually happening in the classrooms and how can I support it at home. Did, did uh, during this COVID period, do you feel that students were on as much, uh, especially launching it remotely, uh, was there catch up to do? Yeah, you know, in early childhood, um, this concept of developmentally appropriate is, is like what, you know, what is right at the child's level and how do we make sure that the information that we're sharing with them is going to be 
recognized by them as something that's meaningful and um, going to actually support their growth and development. So I wouldn't say that um, the kids had catch-up to do. Certainly, they like a lot of young kids experienced uh, things during the pandemic that would reflect some sort of trauma, right? Like, I, I'm now not with my peers, or now I'm at home, or now I'm in a different childcare setting. My parents are more stressed out. You know, the, all of that stuff can contribute to what their capacity for learning is. But across the nation, we have different kinds of um, public, private, PK. And I think everybody was working really hard to do the best they could with what they had. So a lot of these kids, the, the, the shift moved from what we historically would think of as literacy goals or math goals to what we think of now as more a social-emotional context, right? We had a lot of focus on what is happening socially to these young kids as they're going through the pandemic. I, I myself have a four-year-old, and when the pandemic started, she was 18 months old, and she is my youngest of four, and her experience was markedly different than any of my other kids, and she, when she did finally start preschool after the pandemic, she had tremendous anxiety about being away from me, because she had spent the last year right next to, you know, basically all the time, so that's, you know, that's that social-emotional development piece around, like, well, socially, she's in a very different place than her siblings were, because they didn't have that kind of an interaction when they were when they were younger, they didn't have a pandemic to deal with. So again, I don't think that the kids were necessarily behind. I think it was just different and that we're working really hard as a field in early childhood to provide resources to educators to give them the supports they need to you know, elevate and accelerate growth for young children. What, what are some of the important needs that you see in your field right now? Yeah. Oh my gosh, there's so many. <laughs> so early childhood, um, is a really key part of development. And we have volumes of studies that show um, investments in early childhood education pay off well into adulthood. And in fact, there are some studies that show you get the biggest bang for your buck in early childhood. So, you know, for every dollar invested in a pre-K environment, you can get like six-fold return. And there's no other time that we have studies that show that kind of a big return longitudinally. Yeah. And as a, as a nation, we're not on the same page about uh, the value in early childhood. So we don't have universal pre-K across the nations. That's like one priority. Could we get high quality services for young children? And com- in companion to that, right, get them resources in classrooms related to the things like we talked about today, the ed tech, to really help teachers feel well prepared and well situated to really identify student needs and then help them grow while they're in the classrooms. We We do a really uh, dismal job of preparing our early childhood workforce because it doesn't require a degree the same way that mm-hmm. K twelve does, right? So if I'm a kindergarten teacher, I have to have a bachelor's in teaching. Right. In early childhood, you don't have to, right? You can. That's wonderful. But there are also folks who are working in childcare settings who are, you know, right out of high school and are coming into that. So there's a, there's a lot of training involved then on that side, right? Yeah, there's a, a, a dire need for training and support. What we think of as professional development, um, and we have lots of great models that are out there that we know are effective, but we don't have the investment at a national level to support that. So what that means is that there's research that shows what works, right? But then when it comes to like, you know, Head Start or a private agency to say, hey, provide your teachers with this training, it's going to be really great. There's not funding and there's not time and there's not the workforce to uh, sustainability to really maintain that. So we hit a lot of road bumps as we try to roll this out, but it's definitely a work in progress. We're, we're working hard as a field. Upcoming projects, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, how does your calendar look? How, how out do, does someone, let's say I have a company, hey, I want to 
see if you guys can do some testing for me. I want mm -hmm. I need proof of concept. I'm, yeah. I'm looking for that. How, how does that work and how far out is that? Something yeah, like that? that's a really good question. It's tricky in a research environment. Um, so most of my funding comes from uh, large federal grants that operate on usually four-year cycles. So I know right now, like I have projects that will last for the next four years um, ahead of me. They buy out a portion of my time. So let's say I work 20% on one project and 20% on another project. There's like a chunk of my time that is saved to be flexible. So if someone new comes in and says, hey, we are interested in this, and I feel like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm the right person for that or I'm passionate about that, I can use that in that chunk of time that I have. So we have flexibility to bring on new projects. But by and large, we try to keep a good eye on what our scope and sequence is for existing projects and our funding a sort of picture far out, about five years out. And as projects end and new ones pick up, we're constantly in the grant writing cycle. So a lot, of, a lot of my work is grant writing to try to make sure that there's no big gap in that and then to figure out where the opportunities are for external clients to come in and, and request those kinds of needs that we were just talking about. We, we touched a little bit about it, but how did you get involved? How, how did you get into the career that you're in? Is this, when you were, uh, when you were five years old, you said, this is what I want to do? No. <laughs> um, well, to be fair, I always knew that I wanted to work in early childhood. So okay. I grew up in a farming community with a lot of cousins and a lot of small children. I've always sort of had um, someone smaller than me that I was responsible for. Uh, and in college, I started working at my undergrad. I started working at a preschool my first year and became the assistant director there. So I've always had a passion for early childhood. But if you would have said like, hey, you're going to like be in ed tech and assessment development, I would have been like, no way. <laughs> um, so my um, career took a shift when I graduated from my undergraduate and decided I wanted to go to graduate school I came here to the University of Minnesota for the school psychology program, and my advisor, Scott McConnell, worked in assessment. I was really interested in early reading skills. I was, I, I, that was the core. Like, what are those early skills that we need to develop in young kids to get them on the track for reading? Um, and he was working in the assessment space there. So I, that sort of became a serendipitous opportunity for me to learn about that process. And then along the way, the ed tech component of it became sort of a critical agent for how we could rapidly interact with teachers. So that was very organic in, in the process. So we, we knew after building assessments that were paper pencil that teachers needed real-time feedback. Like, I gave an assessment. I need to know now what that score means and how I'm going to use it. Because what happens is, is when you use a paper pencil assessment, you give the assessment. It goes and sits on a shelf. It doesn't ever sort of get back into the cycle of how we use it instructionally, and then it's just wasted time, right? This is the, like, issue that we have with assessment at large is that it's not functional and it's not telling us meaningful information. So our, our goal as part of the IGD work is to be what we call instructionally relevant, to really help teachers have something meaningful that they can do something with tomorrow. So that got us into the ed tech space. And again, I, I mentioned before, we, I had no idea. Well, we had no idea at all. Um, and I've, I've been fortunate to have a lot of great mentors along the way to get us through both, like, understanding the tech tech word, the commercial enterprise, the venture world, and the sort of spin-off um, office of technology commercialization kind of world to get us where we are today. And, and now looking out, you know, we have a lot of potential for new content and new partnerships that are arising and uh, new national representation of different languages, different groups, different approaches that we're taking. So uh, it's, we're thriving right now, and it's, I think, in, in part due to 
the the folks we were able to stand on the shoulders of as we as we've come along. But I ne- I never would have guessed <laughs> I'd be here. Uh, uh, yeah, and I can't imagine too many too many kids saying I'm, I'm going to be in ed tech yeah. specifically. Yeah. They're all they're all online. The the online time is uh, is yeah. is too much, right? Is it too much? I mean, well, I mean, I I can't judge. I don't you know I don't it's know every inside. Yeah. It's individual decision, but. We do know that that kids' experiences involve a lot more technology than generations that came prior to them, and we don't necessarily know the impact of that very well yet because we haven't been in this this position for long. And I, I do think, like, you know, you're right that kids don't say, I want to be in ed tech, but I think what we do hear more often is, like, I want to design video games, right, or, like, things like that, and... We have this sort of angle where we're sort of like, well, sort of. We do this gamified. (laughs) So um, we we kind of like can make this bridge um, to help folks see, oh, you know, there's an opportunity for something richer here than just a game um, to provide feedback to teachers. So, But that's really hot right now, um, gaming mm-hmm. and trying to, in, uh, you know, integrate that into whatever mm-hmm. it is you're doing yeah. uh, on the ed tech side. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you're coming up with ways. Yeah, yeah. We are working really hard on a new um, measure called the Computer Adaptive Storybook Assessment. It's available in English and Spanish. It's called CASA. And that's a game that kids get to engage with, which is super cool. It has some stealth assessment uh, pieces, which are sort of like the hidden opportunities that kids don't realize they're being assessed. It's also sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure. And I'm probably dating myself with these books, but there was these books where you could, like, start at a chapter, and then it would say, you know, go to chapter 6 or 32, which said make your own adventure. Sure. Um, These games offer that kind of flexibility, right, where the kids get to choose the next screen, so they get to create their journey, but the, the assessment mechanism in the background is still doing its job so um, it's a pretty cool way to let them make their own journey really interesting stuff really really interesting if someone would like to reach out to you Mm -hmm. what would be the best way yeah the best way to reach out to me is probably via our website so we um, are at the university of minnesota our website is just igdlab i-g-d-i-l-a-b if you just search that on the university of minnesota engine it'll pop right up um, or via email, which is just my regular email. Um, it's I think I have it in the. Um, well, maybe I didn't we'll, share in the beginning. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. How about that? How about that? Yeah, Alicia Wackerly Holman, thank you so much for joining us here on the Ed North Ed Tech Podcast. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 